Well, as I mentioned earlier, Jonah, uh, we'll be looking at Jonah for the next month. And um, Jonah, obviously, is a very well-known Bible character, a very well-known Bible story. And when you think of Jonah, what comes to your mind? You think, well, and if you know the book, the end of the book, you probably think, worm. Um, Also, people think about, uh, when they think about Jonah, they think about, you know, disobedience and obedience. So really, those, in terms of the mainstream Christianity, what they would think about Jonah is whale, the guy that swallows up the guy named Jonah. And then disobedience and obedience. Now, the book is about those things, but as you look at it from, you know, chapters 1 to 4 and see sort of the main point, it's about really another thing. It's really about how God's compassion goes to all of his creation, including the wicked. It's a book about how God's compassion goes to all of his creation, even the wicked. Jonah was a prophet of God, and um, he's only mentioned twice in the Bible, obviously the book of Jonah, but then also in uh, 2 Kings 14. And he lived and prophesied in the 8th century BC. Um, And then in in terms of the book of Jonah, it's grouped together with other books called the Minor Prophets. Um, So then we've got to ask the question, well, what does it mean for a prophet to be a minor prophet? You know, was he less important? Uh, Like the minor leagues and then the major leagues? Or was he a better or a not-so-good prophet? Um, Really, the distinction between major and minor is really determined on length. So the minor prophets are shorter. The major prophets, in terms of the writings, are longer. Um, So there are 12 minor prophets. And then when it comes to the major ones, you can think of Isaiah, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And this book of Jonah is different, let's say, than uh, the other prophetic books, mainly because it's not so much about the, the, the prophecies of the man, but rather it's about this guy, like we all, uh, you know, we're, Jonah here is struggling to come to grips with the character of God. Who is this compassionate God? Whose compassion goes to everyone, including the wicked. And so really the main point of the book is driven home in chapter 4. So if you're going to go home this afternoon and uh, you want to use your time wisely, I'll just encourage you to go ahead and read through the whole entire book. Chapter 4, that's where the main point is driven home. It's really a conversation between Jonah and this compassionate God. And everyone who reads the book of Jonah is to learn from Jonah's experience. It's a bit like Job. Um, where a lot of Job is conversation and conversation between Job and Job's God. So over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the book of Jonah, basically covering a chapter a week. And every chapter drives home the main point, or drives forward the main point. God is a compassionate God to everyone who calls upon his name. So let's dive into chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there now. Jonah chapter 1. It's in the Minor Prophets, so toward the New Testament... Right before Micah. And we'll just we're just gonna walk through the chapter. Interspersing um, application and then sort of drive home the application at the end. So those of you who really love taking notes, it's gonna be a little bit difficult for you. Jonah chapter one. Verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, 
for their evil has come up before me. So here the word of the Lord goes to Jonah. I mean, that's very much normal. It's what the prophet was to do. The prophet was to go and speak God's word on God's authority, whether it be to his own people, Israel, or to the nations. So in this case here, he's supposed to go to the nation of Assyria. And at that point in time, Nineveh was a very important place, kind of like a royal residence. And he was supposed to bring this prophetic word against the city, against them, because of their evil. Uh, the, the Assyrians were a notorious bunch, really just known for their own brutality. Um, and as I was reading about the Assyrians, man, it, it's, I started feeling the way, jo, uh, the way Jonah did. Because they were just so brutal. And that's going to be explained a little bit later why Jonah doesn't want to go to them to preach this message. Um, but they were, I mean, the stuff, I could, I could read them now. I have it in my notes. But it's like, it's basically rated R about what they were known for and their brutality against the nations, Israel included. Um, so this is just bad stuff. Uh, the, the things that they would do to those that they conquered um, to basically boast in their strength. But the main point here is that their evil... As the Hebrew says, literally, it had come up before the face of God. Before his face. Interesting there that you already get this sort of personal relationship here between God and then his creation. And here we just see that God sees it. He sees the evil. Um, And this here, I think, provides hope to those who have been sinned against. So we all should be wondering, okay, have we been sinned against... If the answer is yes, then this passage here provides hope. There is no evil in the world that finally escapes God's reign and God's eye. And so whatever injustices are going on, whether they be Assyria's in the past or America's, God sees them and he knows them. So we can think of it as on on like a national level or on a family level, or on an interpersonal level between you and, let's say, somebody else who has sinned against you. God sees, and He cares. Now, in His wisdom, He might not deal with things as you might want to deal with things, or on your timetable, but nevertheless, He does, in fact, deal with them. This reminds me of uh, Romans twelve nineteen, which says, Never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourselves. That's Paul speaking. Never avenge yourself. So the question is, well, why should we not avenge ourselves? Is it because we shouldn't care about injustice or sin when it happens to us? Well, the answer is no. Uh, that's, that's not what we should think. We should think. We should be concerned about these things that go on. But this is why Paul says never avenge yourselves. He says never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So it's not that we as Christians should be nonchalant about these things. We should, in fact, care about them. But ultimately, we should entrust these things to God, who says that he, in fact, will take care of them. No evil will escape God's eyes. And that really should provide hope to those of us who have been sinned against. But this here also has application to us who, have, who, who do the sinning, right? So have you ever thought about the fact that God is aware of all of your wrongdoing and sin? 
So God created man, he created man to be in a relationship with him, to live without sin, and yet Adam and Eve sinned, and through that sin entered into the world. Thus we are, we have a sin nature, and thus we sin. And those of you who know, who try and cover up, let's say, your guilty consciences, or try and run away from things, we recognize, right, that we spend so much time trying to prevent other people from finding out what we've done, right? But here, according to Jonah 1, it says that all of our sins rise up before God's face and that he knows them. So God is aware of your sins, even though you've committed in the last week. Everything that you have done, everything that you have left undone, everything that you have thought. But of course, we we should and we ought to expect this from our all-knowing, all-loving all-sovereign and compassionate God who desires us to have a relationship with Him, the Holy One, right? The wonderful thing, though, is that God, what God shows us here in the book of Jonah is that when God sees, when the evil and the sin rise up before His face, oftentimes He doesn't just judge. It's not like He sees and then judges immediately all the time, but He sees and He sends. So again, we're reminded of God's compassion in in Him being a relational being. He sees and He sends a spokesperson, right? A person. In this case, it's Jonah. And He helps, His purpose here is to help Nineveh see their own sin and to see how they might honor and live to the glory of God, their own Creator. So these these messengers are really God's agents of grace, aren't they? God's agents of grace. Even in Nineveh's life. And so if, if you're a Christian, we should be thinking back to you know, how we became a Christian. Um, did somebody tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or how did you hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ? For me, my mother told me the gospel when I was six years old. She would regularly read these Bible devotionals to me um, before putting me to bed. And I remember so distinctly, like it was yesterday, six years old, my mother tucking me into bed and saying, Jeremy, you are a sinner. And she probably had plenty of opportunity to tell me that. Um, but she was telling me that nevertheless. And she said, you can be saved though. And you're saved by crying out to Jesus, who is the Lord and Savior, who can deliver you from your sins. She was an agent of grace in my life. So I wonder for you, who is it that told you the gospel or told you to read the Bible? <clears throat> Have you thanked that person for telling you the gospel? For encouraging you to go to the word and apply to Jesus Christ? And let me encourage you to do that even this afternoon uh, as you reflect on the sermon. These are God's agents of grace. Blessings to you all to bring you to know him. Thank that person, whether it be your parent, your guardian, your relative, your friend. They're agents of grace in your life. Another thing to know, too, is that these messengers are agents of grace, even though, even though they bring a message of judgment. So my mother did, in fact, tell me that I was a sinner before a holy God. And that's basically what uh, Jonah is to do. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 4. And you see at least part of the message that Jonah was charged to preach to the Ninevites. Chapter 3, verse 4, this is when he already goes to Nineveh, and he says, 
Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And we know that the whole city eventually repents. So they're agents of grace, even though they're bringing a message of judgment. I wonder, for you all, when you guys define the word loving as a Christian, for you all to be loving, does it include telling of God's future judgment? Does you being loving include telling others about God's future judgment? Based on the Bible, actually to withhold such information is unloving. And yet it is loving to be preaching this message so that people will become aware of their sin and and realize, Oh my goodness, I live in front of a holy God and I actually need saving. And according to the Bible, um, God has given the world signs, right? You can think of like traffic signs. Uh, If you're going to drive towards a cliff and the cliff is a hundred yards away... And you can't see it, right? You stick a sign into the dirt that says cliff 100 100 yards away. And as you get closer, they might warn you again, okay? 50 yards away, all right? 25 yards away. You got to appreciate that sign, right? You got to appreciate the sign that communicates to us all that there is, in fact, danger coming. And that's kind of, kind of the way that it works with Christianity here in the world. So according to the Bible, God has given the world signs that point us, basically, you know, this is the direction towards heaven, and this is the direction towards hell. This is the direction towards God, and this here is not. So what are the signs that God has given us? The Lord says that he's created the world by which we are to, to some degree, know him. Now, we can't know him savingly by looking at, you know, the Puente Hills, the beauty of them, or the San Gabriel Mountains. But... Those things are given to us that we might be aware, wow, that God has actually made this. Other signs, your conscience, for example. Did you know that your conscience is given to you by God? Is God given? Now, now some of ours might be more accurate than others, but nevertheless, even the non-Christian has a conscience that reminds him of when he he or she is doing wrong or what might be pleasing to the one who has given him or her that conscience. Uh, other signs here, most clearly it's the Bible and other Christians who point people back to the word. And then of course there's Jesus Christ who walked amongst us and preached this gospel. Um, so we as Christians are the signs for our neighbors, for our families, for our friends that say, look, this is the way we are to go. This is what pleases and honors God. And this is what doesn't. And this is what sin is. Jonah here was to bring the word of the Lord, to be that sign to the Ninevites, pointing the Assyrians to God. So God calls them again, if you go back to chapter 1, he says, arise, go to Nineveh. So he says, arise, go to action. But what happens? 1 chapter 3, or sorry, 1 verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is a coastal city basically, and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so whoever wrote this book, it may have been Jonah, we just don't know. You know, He's just reminding us again and again that Jonah here is going away. He's going away. He's going to this place, not, a place called Tarshish, not Nineveh. So God calls Jonah to arise and go east to Nineveh. And Jonah rises, but to go west. 
to Nineveh, uh, to, Tar- to Tarshish, which seems to be uh, basically the edge of the known Mediterranean world, basically Spain. So he takes off and he flees. So the question is, well, why? Was he scared? Maybe. You know, the Assyrians were, again, a notorious bunch known for torturing their victims, um, doing all sorts of horrendous things. Maybe he was scared. But an explicit reason is in chapter 4. Turn there. Verses 1 and 2. So at this point in time, Jonah has finally obeyed God. He preaches the message. All of Nineveh repents. And this is what Jonah says. This is what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not? Is this not? What I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate, a merciful God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Right? That's exactly why I fled. Because I knew you forgive people. I didn't preach the message because I knew that if these people turn, you're going to forgive them again. And you just wonder, what has gone on, gone on in Jonah's mind that he's upset with God being kind and compassionate, gracious and slow to anger. Presumably, Jonah himself knew, right, because he experiences the same type of love and he knows of his own sin, but yet he is really angry. I actually think um, Jonah wanted to preach judgment. I think he genuinely wanted to preach judgment if the result was their destruction. And only if the result was their destruction. He's so disgruntled and he experiences such displeasure with God that he'd rather just shut up. And the most appropriate place to talk about this is in Jonah chapter 4. So when we get there, you know, I hope that really comes out. His anger and what's really going on in his heart. Um, But to sum it up, Jonah at the end of the day is discontent with God's compassion. And how God chooses to give it even to the wicked. Now this doesn't mean that God approves of the wicked and their wicked deeds. It's more like God's compassion goes out to these people because they are part of his creation. Right? We see him, he's... He's in control over whales and worms, and he even cares about the wicked people. So Jonah, Jonah, I think, wanted to preach judgment, but not out of love for the Ninevites. He preaches judgment out of retribution, but God had appointed him to preach judgment with the goal of restoration. You see that that massive difference there? Jonah wants to preach to destroy. God wants him to preach so that they might be restored out of love for their souls to see them saved. But he's not having that here. And so this prophet disobeys God and remains silent, right? He's failing as a prophet. He doesn't have any words for them. He's not going to speak the word of the Lord. And then he tries to escape from the presence of the Lord. Let's see what God does. Chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. 
So that the captains came and said to him, What do you mean, O sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So here they're desperate, right? These guys are mariners, so they're doing business on the sea. They're chucking their cargo, which is basically their wealth and their money. It's how they earn their living. But what else are they doing? Each is crying out to his God, right? So they're polytheistic. They're, they're, they worship many different gods. They're pagans. It's so ironic, isn't it, that these pagan guys are calling out each to his own God for deliverance, and Jonah is doing what? He's sleeping. Which means he's not crying out to his God. So he's not speaking words to God, or words of God, nor is he speaking words to God, because he's kind of grumpy. He even gets rebuked by the pagans, doesn't he? Verse 6, the pagan captain comes, What do you mean, O sleeper? Basically, like, what are you doing? Arise! So there it echoes God's command to, for Jonah to arise and go east. Arise! Call out to your God! You hear that rebuke? Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Interesting here. I'm pretty sure that amidst all the commotion, you know, the ship is breaking up and the tempest is raging. They're in the middle of the storm. They got sailors yelling in his face and this guy has morning breath. I'm sure Jonah misses the opportunity to receive the rebuke. And it's everywhere, isn't it? This is Jonah who is discontent with the fact that God was going to save Nineveh. He's discontent with the fact that God actually gives a thought about every soul in Nineveh that they not perish, but instead that they would repent. And here are these pagan sailors. Come on, you know, do your job. Maybe the God, a God, your God, will give a thought to us. These unnamed pagans polytheistic folks, at least unnamed in the book of Jonah. But this is exactly who God is, right? He, he according to 2 Peter 2, 9, says that uh, he desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And the way the story advances, it leaves Jonah really in the background, sort of like doing nothing, not helping, certainly not calling out to God. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It says, and they said to one another, so it's not Jonah, they said, come let us cast lots that we, that we may know on whose account this evil has come, come upon us. So they're basically like uh, casting dice. And we know according to the scripture that even the, the sovereign Lord is over the casting of um, lots and things like that. So they're casting uh, stones instead of dice. And they're trying to find out whose guilt is brought upon this divine anger and this raging tempest. Um, so they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where are you from and what is your country and who's, of what people are you? So really these are five questions. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where are you from? Your country? Your people of origin? And it's probably the, the question that says... Uh, what is your occupation that sort of drives that nail home, right? He has to say, well, you know, I am a prophet of God, and I speak God's words, and I intercede on God's behalf, but yet he's not really doing anything. Chapter 1, verse 9, finally, finally, he confesses. Chapter 1, verse 9, which reads, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, 
who made the sea and the dry land. It, it's interesting that these are the first words included, or sorry, by Jonah, included in the book of Jonah. Right? You, you get the irony there. Here's the prophet of God. The first words of Jonah in this book is a confession. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the, the sea and the dry land. But yet you've got to wonder, you know, is this guy, is this just like a half-hearted murmur under his breath? Because so far he's just been denying God everywhere. And these, these sailors are trying to get him to, to call out to his God and do all these things, but yet he's not doing anything. He fears the Lord, that's what he says. Yet really he is so displeased and disgruntled with God that he runs away. He fears the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea, but yet he's trying to escape on a ship on the sea and what is amazing is that despite all of Jonah's issues it's only by God's compassion that these guys are saved right it's almost like Jonah's cornered into this confession finally he does and the pagans actually fear God look at verse 10 then the men were exceedingly afraid you're supposed to contrast that with, with Jonah's confession, right? I fear God, but yet, you know, it doesn't really appear to it. But these guys are saying, are they, exceeding, they are exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, or Yahweh, because he had told them. So these pagan sailors there, they fear God. And then 11 and 12, look there. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. So here it seems to be pretty clear that they fear God, Yahweh, who is sovereign over all things, including the sea that they're on, because they recognize who they are. So if Jonah's confession is like this half-hearted confession, nevertheless, the Lord uses that to bring salvation to these guys who clearly, at one point in time, do not worship him. So they look to Jonah. He's the cause of what's going on. So they look to him for the answer. He says, toss me overboard basically so that I would die and so that this raging storm would swallow him up and then God would punish him. So he thinks. But they, go, they don't even want to do that. Look at 13. Nevertheless... The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So here it seems like these guys are learning faster than Jonah does, right? The Lord is the Lord over the dry land and the sea. They're on the sea experiencing this raging tempest. They're rowing back to get back to the dry land. They realize, okay, maybe that God is the God over these things. And finally they say, okay... Well, let's, let's do it Jonah's way. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So again, it, doesn't, it, it seems like these guys genuinely fear the Lord, right? They're crying out to Yahweh that's during the storm. And then after the storm, it says that they feared the Lord exceedingly, kind of doing what Jonah's not doing. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So sacrifices to honor him. They're making vows to follow him. 
So we see God's compassion going out even to these pagan sailors. And that's really what's drawn out of chapter 1 here. These unnamed sailors. He saves them. And he doesn't even let a disobedient prophet stop him. In his grace, he even uses Jonah's half-hearted confession to bring them to know him. Now, some of y'all might be tempted to use Jonah's disobedience to justify your own. Like, oh, maybe it's okay if I disobey because the Lord eventually will use my disobedience to bring other people to know him. But Jonah here is a, an example of what not to do, and that is so absolutely clear. So you cannot justify your own disobedience by looking at Jonah and saying, look, well, Jonah did it, so therefore I can too. But it is true that even when we sin, even when we are living our lives negatively, sort of making a negative testimony to God, he still uses us as sinners to get his gospel out. Jonah's life is characterized in great measure by his disobedience and in even greater measure, his anger towards God. So we should all be finding ourselves in Jonah's story here. In chapter 1, this is a man who tries to run away from the will of God. He disobeys and he runs away from God's mission for his life. I wonder in what ways are you running from God's mission in your life? Specifically in speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. And here we basically just come finish off with... Um, a little bit more application. Perhaps some of you run away from actually sharing the truths of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the greatest confusions about evangelism is reflected in a saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, um, who says, or supposedly said, share the gospel and use words if necessary. Share the gospel and use words if necessary. So you see the confusion there. Like you can actually share the good news without using words. Did you know that sharing the gospel has not happened until you have used words? So if you flip through the Bible, you see that God, the gospel is to be shared with words and preaching and in teaching and in sharing it with other people. It is a message. That's why it's called good news, right? Good news. Now, love is actually very important here. And we see that Jonah is kind of, there's a vacuum of love in Jonah's soul because he doesn't genuinely care for these people. Um, but nevertheless, sharing the gospel requires words. So for you all, when was the last time you actually shared the truths of Jesus Christ with your family, with your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers? And here I don't mean just bringing them saying, just come to church with me, which is great. But I mean actually sharing the truths of Jesus Christ. That we were created in God's image to worship and serve Him. That we had sinned and earned just condemnation. Resulting ultimately if we don't repent and believe in hell. That's the judgment part. But that God in His great grace and compassion sent Jesus Christ, His Son, who took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross for sins. Dying where we should have. As he lived a life that we could not have, he was righteous, and then he died where we should have. So we earn just punishment from God, but God sends Christ to take it upon himself, the wrath that we deserved, he bore. And then he rose on the third day from the dead, basically saying that his death was sufficient. When was the last time you shared that news with your neighbors? 
Perhaps some of us stop short of sharing the gospel because of fear. We fear our friends might be turned off. We fear that uh, they're going to think that we're too pushy. If that's you, remember Jonah. Remember Jonah. Remember that, that uh, it's the preached message of God that God uses to bring people to repentance and salvation, right? That's the message of Jonah. And remember that the message included the message of God's coming judgment. But always keep in mind that we are not to preach and evangelize out of retribution. So how many of us, and I'm guilty of this, how many of us have sort of seen the sins around us and said, like, God's going to judge you? Just sort of in passing, like with disgust of what they're doing. God's going to judge you. Um, I remember one time speaking to one of my friends who was telling me about... Uh, um, you know, the, the, the sexual things that he was doing with girls at clubs and things like that. And he was boasting in this. Saying, I did this and I've done that. And you know what I said to him? I said, like, the worst thing that I could have said. I said, man, you just need to be converted. You just need to be converted. That's basically all that I said. It was so ridiculous. And as I look back and I think about that, that story, I think I've shared it with you before. Um, why would I say that he just needs to be converted? Can he even convert himself, according to the Bible? I mean, what causes a man to be born again? We know that it's the word of God. So why am I not telling him the word of God and identifying with him in his sin? It's like, man, you just need to be converted. You just need to become a Christian, and then you're going to st stop doing these things. Why didn't I say something like, you know what, yeah, there's pleasure in sex. But you know where there's even greater pleasure? It's in a relationship with God. You're looking for a relationship? You turn to your relationship with your maker and you find satisfaction that you never knew of. I say, yeah, sex is good, but you know, God intended that to be, to be presented, to be he had it in a marriage relationship and only that. And these are the reasons why. So I could have said so many other things as opposed to you just need to be converted. Now, that's, share, that's sharing a message of, oh, certainly with a heart of judgment, but with the eye to destruction. When God calls us to share the gospel... With the goal of restoration. So one thing I think that will help us. Um, in sharing the gospel with an eye to restoration. Is trying to identify. With the people that you want to share the gospel with. Right, what has gone on in their minds. That, have, that has so led them. To the place where they're at. Why does one feel the need. Even. To find uh, pleasure in. These sexual experiences. Or drugs. Or relationships. Or anything. How have they so abandoned the image of God, the way that God has so created them, that they're so far away seeking satisfaction in things so other than God, and things that really oppose God? Right? We should be identifying with that. And then also we should be realizing, man, that is me prior to Jesus Christ. I did that. So if you're sharing the gospel and you don't know how to share about your own sin and rebellion, you know, I'd encourage you guys to strongly think about how your own hearts go wayward, even as a Christian, and how we seek to be satisfied in, I think as C.S. Lewis says, mud pies as opposed to great steaks. Now, I'm pretty sure C.S. Lewis did not say, say that, but something to that effect he did say. Uh, we are far too easily satisfied with the things of earth. As opposed to being satisfied with Jesus Christ. Uh, so in everything we do, 
even if we have to share a rebuke to fellow Christians, these things should be done with the goal of restoration. So in previous weeks we shared a, a verse from 1 Corinthians 5 where this man, is caught, this man who claims to be a Christian is caught in sin and is having sex with his stepmother. Right? And even the watching world, even Gailmont here would be able to say, oh man, that is wrong and sinful. And Paul says, well, cast this man out from among you. Basically, remove him from the church rolls. That doesn't mean, you know, never enter into the doors. We want people like that to come into the doors because it's there that we hear the gospel. It's there that we look at Christian fellowship and see restoration and love and forgiveness. But he says, you are to cast this man out from among you and hand him over to put him out of your, uh, the, the realm of God. That is the church into the realm of the world. The question is why? It's so that his soul would be saved. On the last day. So you see how even discipline in the church has its eye towards restoration and not at all towards retribution. As if we are somehow better than the people who sin. We're not. We're just like them. Which is what should lead us to great forgiveness knowing that we've been forgiven. Great love knowing that God has so lavished his love upon us. We also need to align ourselves with God's compassion. And this requires us to know that his compassion leads uh, us, or sorry, his compassion leads God himself to see these sins as they've arisen in front of his face, but then to send people. He sees them and then he sends them, and that is us. So in God's compassion, he uses us to bring his message to people. And you see there, that's part of God's compassion, it's part of his relational being. So then the question is, are you ready to go? Are you ready to accept this mission? Even if it requires us to preach a message of God's future judgment in light of the gospel. Well, if you're visiting with us and you don't believe, um, you know, the awesome thing is, is that we here today, if you are here today and you hear this message, right, this is evidence of God's grace to you. And so there we just encourage you to repent and believe to turn from your sins and embrace this loving God who has made you in his image and desires to have a relationship with all of his creation. He is a compassionate God, as we're going to see throughout the book of Jonah. And he desires your heart as well. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we acknowledge that you are a compassionate God. And oftentimes we aren't. We confess that we think oftentimes in our sin that our judgment is better than yours. That our timetable is wiser than yours. That our judgment even is more accurate than yours. But Lord, we know that all those things are not true because you are our wise God. A perfect God. A holy God. So Lord, we thank you that we don't that, that you don't charge us to ignore these evils in the world or even the sin in our own hearts. But that you are a God who accounts for everything. And we, we understand that. We know that when people sin against us, that's why we are so affronted and so offended and why we are hurt. Lord, we thank you for your compassion. As you do the same, but on such a perfect and righteous scale. So, Lord, we pray that we would act in such a way where we would be pointing people's eyes towards you, our kind and gracious God. Father, we pray that we would find our story in the story of Jonah, that we at times have hard hearts, 
And sometimes there are people out there that have sinned against us that we don't want to share the message of the good news. But we would rather share the message of judgment only. Soften our hearts, we pray. We pray that you would do these things by your spirit. That you would soften our hearts. And that we would do things for Jesus Christ's glory. As we acknowledge that you have so lavished your love upon us. In your son. In your name we pray. Amen.